All right, so tonight we're going to continue in Exodus 24. Um, it has been really, it's been a long trek through what we've been calling the Book of the Covenant, right? The We've seen and we've, we've studied, I'm going to move this down just a little bit. We've seen and studied just law after law after law after law. It's actually gotten, you know, some, some may think it might be monotonous a little. Uh, and we saw Sunday as that sermon in Galatians kind of gelled really with what we're going through in Exodus. Saw how the law is the law is actually important. I mean, it's not completely set aside. It's not completely done away. It's God's word. It's God's infallible word, and it stands forever. And there's no, you know, heaven and earth pass away, but my word will will never pass away. So it is worth our study. It is for instruction, for reproof, for correction, uh, and it's necessary. The law of God is necessary. It shows us. That the nature of God shows us His standard. It shows us His holiness, His justice. shows us the standard of righteousness. It shows us what it looks like to love God and to love our neighbor. And it gives these uh, applicable things and these case laws that we've looked at over the last several chapters. But it also main use of the law, it also drives us to the Savior. shows us that we failed, that we cannot keep the law. We we've saw that, you know, every time we look at the law, we see that, but we saw that Sunday as well as, as we've walked through this book. Now, as we're going to look at chapter 24, which is really, I've said this several times in Exodus, but it's really another turning point in Exodus. Um, chapter 24 of Exodus is the ratification of the covenant, the covenant between God and Israel, the Sinai covenant, the Moses covenant. So in order for any covenant to be established, to be ratified, remember we talked about that Sunday, if a covenant's been ratified, there's no change in it. There's, in order for a covenant to be ratified, to be established, it's ratified by a covenant ceremony that includes the shedding of blood. We saw that in a way, in the Abrahamic covenant, when God made the promises unilaterally to Abraham. We saw that in the sense that there were no stipulations put on Abraham and there were no conditions he had to fulfill. It was just a covenant of promise to Abraham, which applies to us in Christ. We saw that Sunday. But we saw in Genesis 15, you remember what Abraham had to do before God put him to sleep? Nobody? He cut, he cut a bunch of animals in half, remember? Cut a bunch of animals in half and set the pieces to the side. And what's supposed to happen, that was the shedding of blood there, but what's supposed to happen, what was supposed to happen in the Abrahamic covenant was Abraham with his stipulations and God with his duties would walk through the pieces together. That was the covenant ceremony. You see that also in Jeremiah. But what happened? God put Abraham to sleep. And God, as a smoking fire pot and a, and a furnace or stove, I don't remember which one it was, walked through the pieces by Himself. He made that covenant by Himself. So tonight, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the covenant ceremony that God makes through Moses with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. But this covenant that He's making is different than the one from Abraham. 
because of what we talked about just now and Sunday. This one has lots of stipulations. And basically, we've run through all of those stipulations starting in chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments and then all of the case laws that we've seen from chapter 21 to 23, the terms of the covenant, what's called the book of the covenant. They've all been laid out, and now it's time to seal the deal. Any questions before we start about how we got here and where we are in the book of Exodus and what's going on? Any questions? All right, so what I want to do is I want to read verses 1 through 8 all in one section, and then we'll back up and we'll do those uh, a few verses at a time uh, and see what, uh, see what the Lord is, is showing us through this. I want you to get them in your brain first, at least the first half. So this is chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone... Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord has all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood, put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, which is why we call this section the book of the covenant, and read it in the hearing of the people. He read chapter 20 through 23 to the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So we're going to finish the whole chapter tonight, but let's stop there, go back, and just describe what's happening in this covenant ceremony and see how it applies to us today. So it begins with basically God just giving the command for Moses. Moses to bring the elders and what would later be the priest, Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, up the mountain. And Aaron is to accompany him. Uh, he's going to be the first high priest. And his two sons, this is Nadab and Abihu, they're, they're the ones that are going to be killed in Leviticus 10 for offering strange fire. And the 70 elders of Israel. Who are the 70 elders of Israel? I know you don't know their names or individually, but who are they as a group? Who are these men? Huh? Heads of the tribes. They're, they're representatives of the tribes, for sure, for the, for the clans. But what is their job? What do we see in Exodus 18? Judges. They were the judges to help Moses. Remember Exodus 18? Uh, Jethro came to Moses and said, you can't do all this. You need to appoint these people, heads of clans and all. And they were to help. They were leaders. They were the leaders of Israel. Moses is the spokesman for God, the intermediary, the leader of the nation. But these 70 were also, um, also judges and leaders. And um, God is very specific in these two verses about where they must be. Do you see it? It says, all of you come up and you're going to worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near, but the others shall not come near. And the people, the rest of the people, not the 70, they just stay down at the bottom of the mountain. They can't come up the mountain at all. Why do you think God sets these boundaries in the way that he does? 
This what do you think? Maintain huh? order. To maintain order, for sure. What else, what else is what else have we seen? What has every time there's a theophany, a, a God appearing to people, what have we seen? They're afraid. They're afraid. Why? He's holy. Because he's holy. Yeah. yeah. Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. When they came to Mount Sinai, what did God tell them? <laughs> Don't touch the mountain. You better put a fence around it. Don't let your animals touch the mountain. Don't let your people touch the mountain. Anybody who touches the mountain, what happens to them? They die. They die. So God is holy. But Moses alone is the chosen mediator. He is the one who meets with God and brings God's words down to people. He's allowed to come near to the Lord. The priests, or they're not priests yet, but the priesthood is going to be established. Uh, but Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and all of the 70 elders, they could come up the mountain, but they couldn't come close. They couldn't come near to the presence of the Lord. They had to, it says, worship from afar. And the people, all of Israel, had to stay down at the bottom of the mountain. Now when it says worship, it says I want you to come up and you worship from afar. That word worship is literally the word bow down. So remember that. We're going to need that a little later. Jesus called it. <laughs> yeah. For another time. That's good. It's all right. It's all good. Hey. Uh, it's not, no problem. It happens. So to ratify the covenant, God basically commands the representatives of Israel. Moses, what would later be the priesthood, and the 70 elders, the 70 judges of Israel, to come up the mountain as Israel's representative. Uh, now, this is what God commands Moses in verse 1 and 2, but it's not going to happen until verse 9. So it says, this is what I want you to do. Moses is speaking with the Lord. He's up on the mountain. And God says, okay, Moses, I want you to come up the mountain with all these people. And I want y'all to worship. I want y'all, but they stay far away. Then the people stay down. And so first, Moses goes back down the mountain. And he tells the people all that God has said. So verse 3 says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So Moses came down the mountain. He told the people all of the words and the rules. What do you think he told them? He told them the Ten Commandments for sure. He told them all the stuff. He told them everything we read from chapter 20 to chapter 23. He told them all of the, if your oxen gets loose and messes up somebody's field, you got to give restitution. I mean, he told them all of the words. He told them all of the commands, basically. Uh, and it includes everything. Uh, it included all the application of the laws, all, all the things that we've dealt with over the last three chapters. And after hearing all of what we, I mean, we took like, I don't know, it's been two months, really, to do these three chapters. I'm sure it didn't take him that long. He just read all of what God had said or told them all of the words that God had said. And the people say, sure, we can do that. Do you think they understood what they were agreeing to? Do you think they understood the magnitude of what was being said? I don't think so either. I mean, as we read the book of the covenant, chapters 20 through 23, we had to get us we had to have gotten a sense of 
I mean, how can I remember all these things? How can I do all these things? How can I do them perfectly? I mean, I mean, I don't know. Do you think they thought that they could do it? Yeah. Like, you think they were, you think, I mean, so you got a couple of options. You got, and this is all just guesswork. I have no idea. You have no idea. We have no idea. But do you think they either thought, oh, that don't sound so hard. We can do that. That's not a big deal. Or they thought, we can't do that, but man, what are we going to do? we got to agree. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> the second one? I think they thought they could do it. Think they thought they could do it? It's very possible. I don't, we, we don't know. It's not told, so it's just supposition. All we can do is guess. But really... Nothing in there, though, was, makes you say, yeah, I should do the opposite. No. I think in principle they agreed. Yeah, we'll do that in principle. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. And so there's nothing that we've read in the last couple of months that's made, made us think, I don't know if that was really right or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, you can't point to anything in those laws and say, well, that's wrong. Right. You know, I, I think they had every intention. I think they had every intention. Yeah. And they couldn't just like we can't. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. They, they sure couldn't, and we can't either. Um, I think you're right. I remember a story. I don't remember the preacher and I don't remember the setting or whatever, but I remember a story where a preacher was preaching on the law of God and he was he was talking about the law and the necessity of Christians to live by the law from the heart, you know, not from the letter, but from the heart, uh, from our new heart. And there was someone, I wasn't there or anything, it's just a story that I heard, uh, but it was purported to be a true story. Someone stood up, confronted the preacher in the middle of the congregation and said, you're trying to bring us back under the law uh, and we don't have to live after the law. And his response was very insightful. He said, okay, which law do you disagree with? Which law do you want to do that God says you shouldn't do? And, of course, there could be no answer because anything you say, I mean, you're going against God's law. So they probably did have, whether they thought they could or not, or whether they understood the magnitude or not, they probably did have the intention of, okay, we can, we'll try, we'll do this. You know, we don't know for sure, and I don't know for sure. But honestly, what were they supposed to say? God brought them out of Egypt, and here he is, you know, fire and earthquakes and all this stuff. Oh, okay, we'll keep the law, you know, we'll, we'll do your thing, whatever. But whatever they thought, they agreed to it. The terms of the covenant are acceptable to them. So what happens next is Moses begins to prepare the covenant ceremony to take place. And the first thing he does is write down the terms of the covenant. It was important in ancient covenants, all ancient covenants, whether human covenants or, you know, we talk about uh, um, covenants in, in pagan lands and Canaanite during the, this time and suzerain covenants and covenants kings made with their vassals and all those things. And there was always, always, always a written record. A guy named uh, John McKay said this, It was customary when overlords entered into treaties with their vassals for there to be a formal authoritative text detailing what was involved in the agreement. Some of these human covenants documents uh, written in either stone or other vellum, or not vellum, but other, other 
whatever have been found. And so we, we, we see those. But once the terms had been set out and accepted, they were written down and not subject to further change. And that is what Moses, the covenant mediator, does here. So Moses begins by writing down all of the things that God has said. Now, this is just a little byline in, in Exodus. It's part of the ceremony. There needs to be a written, this is covenant, a record of the covenant terms that we're making with this covenant with God. But it's important for us to, stay, uh, for us to understand that from the earliest period of Israel's history, they were people of the book. They were people of the written word of God. So there's a lot of talk today about oral tradition and how it was passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down and finally written down. Um, that's just not so. From the earliest days, they were people of the book. And all the things in Genesis and all of that that you find that Moses wrote were inspired, um, inspired author by the, by the Holy Spirit through Moses. But from the very beginning, in fact, they put, they put, the Ten Commandments and the written code of the law into the Ark of the Covenant, they have been people of the book from the very beginning. Writing down the law was important. Why is writing down the law important? For Israel, this new nation that's about to go into the Promised Land. They think they're about to go in the Promised Land anyway. Why is it important? So you remember it. So you can remember it. So it's not subject to some old judge's memory saying, well, I think I remember Moses saying... There would be a permanent, accurate account of what God's terms for the covenant would be. They would use it to instruct the community, to instruct the next generation. The written covenant uh, we see through the Old Testament was to be read and reread at intervals at appointed times. The judges, as you said, would be able to reference the remember the book of the covenant is basically the application of the Ten Commandments in all of these different case laws, all of these different situations that we've walked through. Judges would be able look at precedent and apply the law based on what was written by God, uh, said by God, is written down, whatever the situation presents itself to them. They had case law to go by. It was central. The written law, the written word was central to Israel as a nation. And so first in the covenant ceremony, Moses writes down the law and then he begins to prepare the ceremony itself. It says in the second part of verse 4, he rose early in the morning, he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. What does the altar signify? There's several things that it does signify. So what do you think? What does the altar signify? The place where you meet God. The place where you meet God. That's Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What do they do at the altar? Sacrifice. sacrifice. What does sacrifice signify? Jesus. Jesus, substitution, blood of the atonement, uh, the substitution to, to, to pay for sin, worship of God. You bring a sacrifice, you worship God through sacrifice. So here you have a picture of this of covenant of the of covenant Israel before the presence of God represented, God's represented by this altar where sacrifice takes place, where the blood is going to be put, and all of these things. 
uh, are a picture of this covenant ceremony. You have God represented by the altar on which the sacrifices are made for atonement and for all of those things, for worship. And then you have the 12 pillars, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel who are also before the throne of God, before the altar of God, and making this covenant with God. And so he, he builds the altar. Where did he learn how to build the altar? Ancestors. Ancestors, for sure. But where did he learn how to specifically build a specific type of altar in a specific way? At the river. Who told him how to do it? God told remember remember that whole section you're to build it it's not not to have these steps you're not to walk up it with you know without underwear on and you know all those things we we went through that so God told him how to do this he he puts this altar and builds this altar and build, sets up the pillars to represent the 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 12 tribes of Israel and then sacrifices are offered said he sent the young men of the people of Israel. The, the, I take this to mean, this is just my supposition, but I take this to mean the, the firstborn sons of the tribe because later we're told the, before the priesthood is enacted and delineated, it was the firstborn sons of each tribe, of each family that acted as the priest bringing sacrifice. He sent young men to the people of Israel who, uh, of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Where did did they sacrifice these the on the altar absolutely absolutely right a whole burnt offering is if you want to learn about that it's in Leviticus 1 the entire animal is consumed by fire the whole thing's given over to God it's an offering for sin it's an offering for dedication to the Lord and the other offering that was given was uh, sacrificed was a peace offering or it's also called a fellowship offering in Leviticus chapter 3 and this offering was not completely burnt up was not completely, you know, uh, dedicated to God, but part of it was, and the other was cooked and eaten by the worshipers in the presence of God, uh, and we're going to see them eat this, this meal before the Lord in a moment. Any questions so far? I know this is kind of heady. Y'all are all looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate. Alright, so he builds the altar, he sets up the, he sets up the pillars, Sacrifices are made, and as the sacrifices are being prepared, he takes the blood and he throws half the blood on the altar. He puts half the blood in bowls and throws it on the people. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. This is what he had written. And they said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So he throws half the blood on the altar, throws half the blood on the people. So here what we're seeing is that both parties are undertaking a covenant commitment and the blood is how this covenant is, for lack of a better way to put it, signed or sealed or enacted. It was how Israel's sin was atoned before God, uh, not fully, but in preparation for Christ's coming in His blood, but it was how Israel's sin was covered before God that they might enter into this covenant. And the blood on the people was, it, it marked them out as the people of God. The blood was sprinkled on both parties, as it were, on the altar representing God and on the people. It was tying them together. This is a bond in blood, a covenant 
in blood between God and His people. And it was a seal of God's commitment to the people to do what He said He was going to do. And it's a seal of the people who are called to commit themselves to the terms of the covenant that they said that they were going to do. Now, verse 7, when they say, after Moses reads the book. So he came down, he told the people the words and the rules. They said, okay, we'll do those. And now it just seems like he does it again, right? This time he reads the book of the covenant and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. What's happening here is when Moses gave the words to the people before in verse 3, he was just telling them what God had said and they were just acknowledging that, yes, God's terms are acceptable. We're going to enter into this covenant. Here what's happening is they are making a covenant vow in covenant ceremony before God. It's the same thing is like, like in marriage when you, know, you get down on one knee and you say, will you marry me? And she says, yes. Uh, you're technically not married. She just agreed to marry you. But when you stand before you know, a, a preacher in a ceremony and they actually say, I do, and you take the vows, that's the covenant ceremony that bonds you into marriage. Do you understand the difference? So at first they were just saying, yeah, okay, those sound acceptable. Let's do that. And here is the ceremony that binds them together in covenant. And they're signing their name, for lack of a better way to put it, in blood. And when they make their vow, the blood is thrown on them. Now, we just talked about the significance of the blood being thrown, marking them, ties them to the covenant of God. But put yourself in the shoes of, or the sandals, of an ancient Israelite nomad who is living in tents, has traveled from Egypt, is, is basically there camping at Mount Sinai. What do you do today if you get blood on your clothes? Wash it. Wash it with what? Huh? Well, I'm getting a lot of answers. I didn't expect this many. It's a whole lot of ways to get blood out of your clothes today, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, so spray and wash and tide and all of those things. Yeah. Well, they didn't have detergent. They didn't have, yeah, they, they, they didn't have any of that stuff. They didn't have suitcases full of clothes to change into either. You remember how they came out of Egypt? Quickly, grab what you can go and go. So imagine this, and this is all coming out of my brain. This is not in the text, but imagine this. So they're sprinkled with the blood. Sprinkled with the blood on them. Some would get on their skin, some would get on their clothes. You know, just you can imagine what sprinkling with blood looks like. Some of that blood would remain on their skin for days. It would remain on their clothes. It would be visible on their clothes, even if it was faded, for as long as the clothes last. As long as they wore them, there would be stains of that blood on their clothes. For at least, for at least a while they would be marked by the blood of this covenant. Everywhere they looked, there would be sprinkled spots of blood all over their clothes, all over their stuff. They would be marked by the blood separated by the covenant that they have made with God. And so what, what we see here is... You know, what I pictured in my mind when I read this was, you know, you know, splat, you got blood on you. Ooh, gross, let me get that off of there. No, it's on there, and it's on there for good. It's on there for good until you, until you get new clothes or, or whatever. Now, you know the story, right? You know what's going to happen. 
within 40 days before they ever step foot away from Sinai, they're going to break the covenant. They're going to build a golden calf and they're going to worship the golden calf. And so we look at that and we say, you know, these people, how, how in the world? that? I mean, surely they understand the words that Moses has spoken to them. And surely, you know, even though they can't, you know, we're not perfect, we can't keep it perfectly, but, but they have every intention, hopefully, we don't know for sure, but every intention to keep it perfectly. But within a month's time, within 40 days, they are going to not slip up. They're going to build a golden calf. And they're going to start worshiping. And, and when we hear that, what do we think about these people? What does that say about them? Like what comes to your mind when you hear all of the unfaithfulness that Israel is, is renowned for through their wanderings in the wilderness and in coming to the promised land? How we, huh? How could they do that? Yeah, how could they do that? How, did it not register? Have no other gods before me. Don't make any image. Oh yeah, let's make a golden calf. But the reality is that we can't keep the law any better than they did. And we don't keep it any better than they did. But like them, because we see God's mercy over and over and over and over and over again in the wanderings in the wilderness here at Sinai, even when they enter into the promised land and don't fulfill any of the things God told them to do in the promised land, we see His mercy over and over and over because like them, we can belong to God on the basis of blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats. Not under the blood of the Mosaic Covenant, which they're under. But by the perfect, once for all, sacrifice of blood that places us into the covenant of Abraham. And the new covenant in Jesus' blood. The promise of salvation by faith. You notice the words Moses says here. He says, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. The blood of the covenant. I looked up that phrase in Scripture this, uh, this week. And you know, it's only used one other time in the Old Testament. The blood of the covenant. Or blood of the covenant. It's used in Zechariah 9.11, which says, Because of the blood of my covenant, I will set your prisoners free. But it is used several times in the New Testament. Do you know where? Well, it's, it's, I think it is used in Hebrews, but that's not what I'm thinking of. It's used in the Gospels. It's used in the Gospels several times. It's used when Jesus said He took the cup and when He gave thanks, drink of it, all of you, for this is not the blood, My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in Mark 14, He says, This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And in another place, He says that this is the cup of the new covenant in My blood. And we know the difference between the two covenants after Sunday, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. One has stipulations that we have to fulfill. And nobody's ever done it. Nobody can do it except for Jesus. The other has no stipulations whatsoever. It is a covenant by faith in Jesus Christ. So the covenant ceremony has been accomplished. It's been done. I think in Hebrews it does say that we are sprinkled with the blood uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, I think. 
Uh, and it is a reference to the sprinkling that Moses did on the altar and on the people. But we're sprinkling with the blood of the new covenant. The covenant ceremony has been done. Both parties have agreed to their obligations. God is going to do what He said. The people are supposed to do what they said. And the covenant has now been sealed in blood. So in those first eight verses, what we've seen is the covenant ceremony enacted. Now, by the blood, by the altar... By the promises made on both sides of the covenant, the covenant, the people are in covenant with God. Now, in verse 9, we're going to see the representatives of Israel, Moses and Aaron, Nahab and Abihu and, and the 70. They're going to go up the mountain as God commanded them in verse 1 and 2. It says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and, seven, and the 70 elders went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under His feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness and he did not lay his hand on the chief men I mean God didn't lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel they beheld God twice they saw God he says they saw God and they ate and drank so they go up the mountain and it says they saw God but in describing what they saw they don't describe, no description is given of God or what they saw. The only thing that's described is the pavement under His feet. Why? Because that's where their eyes were. Probably if you can't gaze on God. Yeah, he said, she said that's, because their, that's where their eyes were. There's several theories that nobody knows for sure. But it does make sense because when He gave the command in verses 1 and 2, what did He tell them to do? bow down. Worship from afar. And that word means to bow down. So they were to bow down. So some people say that they were, you know, that they saw God, you know, because it says they saw God, but Moses would just refrain from writing it. It's possible. Uh, some people say that um, they were bowing down. They didn't get above his feet because, uh, you know, of uh, his holiness and their fear of, uh, of looking at God. Um, there are some, and this is interesting to me, but I, no, I can't prove it and you can't disprove it. So it's, but it's interesting to talk about. Some people talk about the fact that they were looking up uh, and they saw God's feet, as it were, through a pavement of sapphire. And they liken that to Ezekiel's vision where he looked up and he saw the sapphire and the throne of God looking up into the throne room of God. Uh, actually, that's, that's a neat theory. I can't prove it. I have no idea. It doesn't really tell us anything. Moses is intentionally vague when he writes this. He just says they saw God and then he describes this sapphire pavement. It's very interesting to me, but it's really all supposition. What is amazing to me is that they saw God and they didn't die. It, that's what it means when it says, and He did not lay His hand on them. He didn't kill them. Later in Exodus 33, 20, He's going to tell Moses, I can only show you my back because nobody can look on me and live. And we already saw God say, listen, nobody better come up this mountain. Nobody better touch this mountain. You let your animal loose and it touches this mountain, it's going to die. And so yet here we're told two times. They went up the mountain, they saw God, and they lived to tell about it. How? Why? Why do you think? The blood. The blood? Because they were in covenant? 
They were invited into God's presence by the covenant, by the blood that covered them. For sure. I mean, we don't... That's the only feasible, logical answer. There are some that say, and this is, this is plausible, if not probable, that what they saw was a pre-incarnate Christ. They saw God, the second person of the Trinity. For in, first, in John chapter 1, it says no one has ever seen God, but Jesus Christ has made Him known. It's very, very possible. So here's the question. How do you come into the presence of a holy God and not die? Yeah, yeah. The blood of the covenant, the grace of God through faith in the blood of the covenant. In fact, how do you come into the presence of a holy God and not die is the theme of all of Leviticus, all of Deuteronomy, all of Numbers, all of these things, all of these sacrifices, all these laws, all these, the, the giving of the tabernacle and what it needs to look like and how it needs to work and the priesthood. That is the theme of the entire Torah, the, the, the first five books of Moses. You have the storyline through Genesis. You have all the way to Exodus. You have the laws given in Exodus 20. And from that point on, here we're going to get into some, in the next chapters, we're going to get into the tabernacle and all that stuff. But from this point on, all the way to the beginning of the book of Joshua, the theme is, how can I come into the presence of God and not be killed? And it's sacrifices, priests, and the tabernacle, and all of those things. That's how, that's how it is given. And the answer to all of that points to the blood of the covenant in Jesus Christ. And as we look at the tabernacle furniture, we're going to point it to Jesus at every single piece. So not only are their lives spared when they see God, but they eat a covenant meal in the presence of God. You see it? It says, they beheld God, they ate and drank. So, this was part of the covenant-making ceremony as well. After the covenant is read, the blood is shed, the two parties would share a meal together, signifying their agreement, signifying their fellowship, signifying the covenant they had with one another. We've seen this practice already over and over in Genesis. When Isaac made a covenant with Abimelech, it says they, they had a meal together after that covenant was, was ratified. When Jacob and Laban made a covenant in Genesis, is 31. Remember not to cross the boundary and attack each other? They ate a meal before they, before they departed. This is a picture of a covenant meal with God in covenant fellowship with God. What they ate was probably, we're not told, but probably their part of the offering, of the peace offering of the oxen, and they were eating it there in the presence of God. A covenant meal in fellowship with God. Do we have a covenant meal today? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The Lord's Supper. It's a, it's a covenant meal. Ate in the presence of God in the body of Christ. And we have a perfect covenant meal coming one day, which is the marriage, marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will be. This, this is, I mean, it's, it's amazing. So chapter 24 is a covenant ceremony where God's worship, sacrifices are made, blood is shed, and there's so much here to apply to our own covenant relationship. Although there are differences, we have no stipulations other than trusting in Jesus. So think about this. They were separated from God by sin. Don't touch the mountain. Don't come up here. I will kill you. But God invites them into His presence. God gives them His Word that they write down. 
Their sin is atoned for, covered through the blood of the covenant. In this, in this case, oxen, which symbolized the true son that would come and give his blood. And then by that, God brings them into his presence and they fellowship with God with a meal. I mean, that's a picture of heaven. That's a picture of the gospel. That's a picture of the fulfillment of all things. A picture of salvation. I mean, you can't get any more descriptive than that. And now that the covenant is ratified, the covenant ceremony is done, the blood has been shed, the covenant meal has been eaten, God calls Moses to come back up the mountain and He's going to give him the covenant document. So, said so the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I might give you the tablets of stone with the law and with the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua. We're going to be hearing a lot about Joshua. And Moses went up the mountain of God and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. Now, you may be asking, Isn't Moses already on the mountain? Nobody was asking that? Okay, I'm not going to answer it then. <laughs> yeah, Moses goes up and down the mountain all through these chapters. And to be quite honest, it's hard to keep track of how many times. There's some people that say it's, it's seven times. Some people say it's ten times. goes up and down the mountain several, several times. And so obviously... This is sometime later. He's come down the mountain, and after he came down, God calls him back up to receive the tablets. What's written on the tablets of stone? <laughs> the Ten Commandments. How do you know that? Is it just because Charlton Heston brought them down? <laughs> yeah. It's written in the Word. Huh? It's written in the Word. Is it? Do you know where? You're right. It is. It's in Deuteronomy 4.13. Moses is recalling all this as they before they go in the promised land. He said, And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So it is the, the, covenant, the covenant stipulations. And you might say, now, that's the Ten Commandments. But what about all the other stuff we read in chapters 21 through 23? Remember, we're talking about that when we work through it. They were case laws applying the Ten Commandments. These are the commandments. All of the things we saw before tells us case law and application of how we love our neighbor, how we love God, and what that looks like in different situations. So these tablets that Moses goes up to receive, did I put the next? Yeah. These tablets that, goes, uh, that Moses goes up to receive will be the tablets that he throws to the ground and smashes when he comes down the mountain the next time in Exodus 32 and sees the, sees the golden calf. So heeding God's command, Moses goes back up the mountain with Joshua this time, and he receives the stone tablets that are written by God. And he prepares, you know, in these verses, he's preparing the people for his time away from them. He's going to take only Joshua. He tells the elders to wait here. And he assigns men to be in charge in case there's a dispute or there's something that needs to be judged. And the two men he assigns are Aaron and Hur. Is Aaron ready to be in charge? No. 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 While Moses is gone, in this particular instance up the mountain, is when the golden calf is going to be built. So last few verses and then we'll be done. It says, Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, 
he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire, a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So the glory of the Lord covered the mountain. Six days Moses waits up the mountain but outside of the glory of the Lord and on the seventh day God invites him in to the glory cloud as it were is there any significance about six days and then God bringing him in on the seventh creation 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 for sure uh, also the Sabbath the Sabbath day there's you know there's lots of lots of things we could say about that we don't know for sure it's not told to us and everything we say is supposition but there probably is some correlation there God's presence is this consuming fire on the mountain you know it's a writer of Hebrews says that God today is still a consuming fire but Moses was allowed to enter into the glory cloud enter into the enter into the fearful presence of God, the cloud, the fire, the, all the things there on Mount Sinai. Moses was allowed to enter. And it says he stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights. What do you think, what do you think he was doing all that time? <laughs> Listening. Listening. That's a good you're probably right. You are. I mean, you're definitely right. What was he listening to? I mean, he's okay. <laughs> vague question, vague question. What was God telling him, do you think? The commandments are probably the tabernacle. How yeah. to build the tabernacle. How to build the tabernacle. That's exactly what he was telling. Because Moses is going to stay up there all the way to chapter 32. And all of that, chapter 25 through 31, is God telling Moses how to build the tabernacle. And then in 32, God's going God's to say, Moses is not going to say, okay, I'm done. I'm going back down. God's going to say, you better get back down the mountain because the people are rebelling. And he's going to find the golden calf there. So he was given, up the mountain, he was given the, the schematics, as it were, the divine you know um, how to build the tabernacle and we're going to look at that through the next six seven chapters yay Moses also fasted for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain it says that in Deuteronomy 9 it says when I Moses is talking to Israel he said when I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights I neither ate bread nor drank water and the Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God and on them were all the words that the Lord has spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly and so he fasted 40 days and 40 nights just like somebody else I know just so you guys know Susan prefaces every question with I have a question <laughs> it's kind of our little joke in the office well, okay, okay, okay. so when Jesus after three days and Jesus was tempted when he on earth 40 days before he ascended into heaven. I'm asking, is it 40 or 50? Anybody know the answer to that? 40 days? 40 days? He was in the wilderness 40 days. Yeah, he was fasting and praying in the wilderness for 40 days when Satan was tempting him. Satan was allowed to tempt him. Also, you see... 40 years. 
40 years in the wilderness, you know, that 40 days, 40 nights of rain, absolutely in the ark. So what you see, and this is this is an opinion, it's an interpretation, and I think it's I think it's correct. Feel free to push back. We can talk about it if you want to. What you see in the gospel narrative of Jesus's life is you see Jesus fulfilling all of the areas of the Old Testament people of God where they failed, He succeeded. Where Israel failed in the wilderness over and over again and refused to go into the promised land, Jesus succeeded. He was not tempted. He was tempted, but did not succumb to temptation. Uh, you see Jesus fulfilling all of the things that, uh, that, that are portrayed in, in the Old Testament. Any other comments, questions? And so it's at the end of this time of 40 days, 40 nights up in the presence of God receiving the instruction of the tabernacle that Moses would come down and discover that the people had broken the covenant. And we talk about God's mercy and He is merciful to the people, but there was judgment as well. A lot of people died that day. God, God killed a lot of people for that, yes. I think it just struck me how the, the elders that saw God were part of the it seems, right? Yeah. It never says anything about Aaron, like all these people that, whether they saw God or saw his feet or whatever. You know, I never thought about that. That's a good point. She said that Moses and Joshua are the only ones up the mountain now receiving instruction. The elders and Aaron and they, all, these, all these guys, they went up the mountain and they saw God. They ate the covenant meal with God. And while Moses was up there, those same men were part of the building of the golden calf. That's a good, that's a good insight. That's a good insight. And Aaron was supposed to be the first high priest. Now, he was the first high priest. He did, yeah. And you're going to see a lot of, I mean, when we get to that section, that's a very interesting section. They just threw some gold in there and it popped out. Yeah, <laughs> that's what Aaron... <laughs> So that, that's what I was saying. He says, John said, they just threw some gold in there and the calf popped out. That's what Aaron is going to tell Moses. <laughs> so he's trying to shift the blame away from himself. It you know. like us. Doesn't that sound like us, though? Like, yeah. I, I don't know what happened. I just got in this situation. This is what happened. And do you, see, do you see the correlation, though, in, in the narrative of Scripture? You see it over and over and over again. At the beginning, at the very beginning, you have the 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 woman is deceived, and Adam Adam it's Adam's fault. He should have kicked the serpent out and made a belt out of him. Uh, and instead of instead of instead of understanding their guilt and admitting their guilt, what do they do? The woman the 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 man said, "Oh, it's the woman's fault. She she did it." And the woman blamed. Well, who'd she blame? She blamed, she blamed the serpent. And so, in fact, Adam blamed God. He said, the woman you gave me, didn't it? And then, then Cain and Abel, you have the blame shifting. You have it all, all the way through. You have it all. I forgot where I was going. I had a good point. It's gone now. Blame somebody else. You have the, yeah. Oh, man. We often don't take responsibility for our own sin. We don't take responsibility for our own sin. Oh, here's the thing. So, <laughs> what you see all the way through, all the way through the text of leading up to the gospel, leading up to the coming of Jesus, is you see this, the heart has not been changed. 
So you see it in the garden, you see it in Cain and Abel, and then after the flood and everything's better, you see it again in Noah and his sons, and then you see it again in Israel, and, and it all, you know, okay, I'm going to give you the law. Now just keep the law, but the heart's not changed. And then you see it in the man after God's own heart. You see him do the same thing, and it's a year before he's ever brought to a conviction by Nathan coming. The heart is not changed. And so so it, it, it culminates all with the problem of the seed of the woman, the serpent, and the fall of man. And you see all of these things just culminating. And you see good things happen. You see laws given. You see God dealing with His people. But the main problem of all of Scripture is not dealt with until Jesus Christ comes and changes the hearts of people in the New Covenant. That's where I was going. So 24, chapter 24 is this climactic moment. At the end, where the mediator of God's people, between God and His people, enters into the glory of the Lord because of the covenant, because of the blood of the covenant. And this points to the true mediator. Remember, Moses failed. Moses wasn't allowed to get into the promised land because he lacked faith. He hit the rock too many times. When he, you remember the deal. Yes. But, but even when the hearts change, like Paul, Paul says, you know, I, I want to do good, but I do bad. You know, things of that nature. So sure. We've got to stay on guard. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He said that even when our hearts are changed, we have to stay on guard. We still, still inhabit, the flesh still inhabits, it wars against the spirit. But now we have, we have God dwelling in us that brings, you know, it, it, it shouldn't have, I uh, better not say that. <laughs> What we, ha what we have now, you know, a lot of people say, I, I just wish we could have walked with Jesus and you know, we could have been with Jesus. Oh, it's so much better yeah. in, the, in, this, in the new covenant. Jesus is in us. He's with us wherever we go. And we have a new heart now that when we do sin, when we do, then, then we have the Holy Spirit right there that says, no, you, you, you've sinned. And, and we have this internal... Um, um, application of God's Word that brings that Word to the forefront in our hearts. And so, yeah, the fight is not over, for sure. So we're not just laying back on our laurels saying, oh, it's great, we're in grace, we don't have to worry about it no more. The fight is not over, but the victory has been won, for sure. Anything else? Yes? Yeah, so you noted during the uh, covenant and the sprinkling of blood, these elders would have been sprinkled with blood, that would have been on their clothes until they got new clothes. And I thought that was a somewhat close analogy for how we are marked by the blood of Christ until uh, we are given new bodies. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Everybody hear that? Yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're marked by the blood of Christ until we are given new bodies. Uh, in a new heavens and a new earth where sin is completely eradicated. And the sprinkling, as I said, it, it, I think it's picked up in Hebrews where this is the passage Cameron preached on where it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, it's not just Moses that can go into the glory now. It's not just the high priest that can go into the holy of holies now. All who are in the, under the blood of Christ can go in. And he says, We go in by this new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh and since we have this great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, look at it, with a true heart, 
in full assurance of faith. Our, our covenant doesn't depend on our works or our stipulations. We have full assurance of faith that God is going to keep His promise. And then he says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sprinkled, I think he's picking up on the theme of the sprinkling of blood. Not just Moses, but all through the Old Testament, the high priest would come, he would sprinkle altar on the blood whenever there were sacrifices. So our, our hearts, uh, we have full assurance of faith because our hearts themselves, not just our bodies, not just our clothes, not just the outside of us, but our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Cleansing before God is what it means. So this covenant ceremony, it points to Christ. It points to the new covenant. It points to the, the fulfillment of all that we have in Christ. I'm going to go ahead and warn you. The tabernacle's not going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> but it most certainly is God's Word, and it is useful for correction, reproof, training, and we're going to see a lot about Jesus in the furniture of the tabernacle. Any questions, comments before we go? Okay. Father, we do love You. We thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for, uh, thank you for this vivid description of the covenant that you cut with your people. And though we know, God, that none of your people kept your covenant, none of the people kept this covenant that you made through Moses and to the people of Israel, but we also know because we have the full revelation of your word that the law was never intended to give life. The law was never intended for us to climb up it to make us right with God. It was intended to show us our sin. It was intended to show us our failings so that we would be driven to the Savior. Thank you for um, the, the, the vivid depicting of this ceremony and how it pertains to Christ and the new covenant in His blood. How we are washed clean and there are no stipulations other than just trusting in what you have already done. We thank you for the promise. We thank you for the full assurance that we can come before you because our hearts have been sprinkled with blood, the blood of Christ, and our bodies have been washed and cleansed. And there's no further cleansing needed other than the gospel of Jesus Christ for us to come into your presence and enter in boldly to the throne of grace with full assurance. Father, we thank you for that. And God, help us to walk in that as we, uh, as we go out our daily lives. We thank you. We do love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.